Well, the time has finally come. You've been waiting for it uh, since last year. We are going to finish our series on 2 Corinthians. I know uh, that you've been waiting for this just like you've been waiting for the last season of This Is Us. We preached through last fall. There's a couple of This Is Us fans. All right, somebody watches it. No? All right. I thought I heard something. Never mind. I got a few more This Is Us jokes, so I'm just hoping. I'm hoping that someone's watching it. Uh, we started it last fall. We made it through the first nine chapters, and it was amazing. And then we stopped for a while to spend some time in John through Advent. And some of you were just sitting there wondering, when are we going to get back to 2 Corinthians? Well, today is the day. And for the next few weeks, we're going to go through uh, the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. But in order to do that, I've got to kind of catch you up. This is like at the beginning of the show when they say last time on This Is Us, but really it's like gives you kind of the whole, all the background you need uh, in order to understand what's happening. So uh, Paul uh, was the very first Christian to arrive in the church in the city of Corinth, or at least the first one to share the gospel with them. This happened on his second missionary journey Corinth is a very metropolitan, diverse city. So this man coming in, sharing this new idea about a Jewish Messiah that had conquered the world through his death and resurrection was a very interesting idea to them. And for some of them, it was actually interesting enough that they were willing to listen and eventually give their lives to this thing called the gospel. And so Paul spends two years in this city, and he plants a thriving church. And they're meeting in a number of different houses. They're learning more and more about Jesus. And so Paul is like a father to the Corinthian Christians. He is their founding pastor. He is their apostle. But the story starts to get uh, interesting after Paul leaves uh, Corinth. He leaves and he gets a letter from someone in the church saying, it's not going very well. There are divisions in the church. There are inappropriate sexual relationships. There, uh, when you come to a worship service, uh, there is just messy and chaotic. And at the Lord's Supper, when they celebrate that, people are getting drunk. It's just not going well. So Paul goes and he writes, for, so first Paul writes what we know as the letter of 1 Corinthians, where he addresses these issues that he has found about. And then sometime after that, Paul goes to visit Corinth. And his hope is that they'll say, Paul, we got your letter and we're so sorry for the way we're behaving. We received your letter and we, we saw the error of our ways and we've all turned back to following Jesus, but instead Paul finds out that they've actually turned and started following some people who called themselves apostles, people who were not supportive of Paul's ministry or not supportive of the gospel, and Paul finds out that they've actually kind of forgotten him or at least rejected him, and Paul is so shocked that he's shown up to these people that he loves, that he's invested so much time and love into, that he actually has to leave the city. He walks away 
with tears pouring down his face, rejected by his own, what felt like his own children. So Paul writes a letter that he calls his tearful letter, a letter that has more, ink, more, more tears than ink on it because he is so sad about what's happening there in Corinth. And he sends the letter, and then he cannot do anything else until he finds out what happens to, the, to how they respond to this letter. So he sends it with someone named Titus. Titus goes down. He reads this letter. The people find out how sad Paul is, how hurt he is, how wrong they have been. And this time, they respond. This time, they repent of their sin. They turn back to the gospel. And they once again uh, acknowledge Paul as their apostle. Paul is anxiously waiting to find out what's happening. He can't preach. He can't do anything else. And so he actually starts running to meet Titus, and they meet halfway between Corinth and Ephesus. And Paul says, Titus, what did they say? How did they respond? And Titus gives this huge smile on his face, and he says, Paul, you've got your children back. Paul, they, they re- I read the letter to them, and they, they are so sorry for what they've done. And once again, the church is back on track. And so now before Paul visits them again, he's going to write them one more letter. And this is the letter that we know as 2 Corinthians. So all of this to say that Paul has written some letters. We have 1 and 2 Corinthians. We have other letters that there are other letters that we don't have. And Paul has also visited. There are times in his letters when the church has not responded. And there are times when Paul has sent letters they have responded. There's times when Paul has been there when the church was very favorable and enthusiastic about Paul. There are times when Paul has been there and he has been rejected. It's a very up and down relationship with the church in Corinth. So all of this to say is that uh, Paul doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen when he, is, when he, ha- when he arrives for the third visit to the city of Corinth. And he's hoping that when he arrives, he's going to be made to feel like he belongs there. Not like the previous time where they made him feel like he didn't belong. So this is, this is way more interesting than This Is Us. So if, if you're not watching that, just listen to, just think about what's happening at Corinth because there's so much more activity here than in any episode any show that you've ever that you've ever watched and let me just connect it for a moment to your life and what paul is going to address in second corinthians chapter 10 it's those accusations that are made against us that make us feel like we are not part of a group so when someone does or says something or uh, does acts in such a way that we feel inadequate, that we feel judged, that we feel like we are not accepted. And all of us know what that is like. It is the first day of school uh, when you aren't sure uh, if you're going to see people that you know. Maybe you know that you don't know anyone. You're not sure what it's going to be like, and you feel very uncomfortable and out of place. Adults have the same thing when they go to their first day of work, their first day in a new church. 
uh, it can be really intimidating. You wonder, am I going to feel like I belong? But it's not just on that first day. It can be over a period of time where you always feel a little bit like an outsider, a little bit out of place. And there are times when people are in the wrong place. We know people who have jobs or have been appointed to positions of power where they don't necessarily fit. And this is not a sermon about that. This is about when you feel like you don't fit, especially in a place where you should be welcomed and embraced, a place like your own family or in the church where you should be welcomed. This is what Paul is talking about here. The reason uh, that he was made to feel like he didn't belong in the church in Corinth is because they, he didn't meet their standards or their expectations. He alludes to this a few times. Uh, first of all, in verse 1, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. And then in verse 10, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. These were the accusations that were made against Paul. When Paul is there, it's kind of like just unimpressive. Like he doesn't leave an impression. But then he goes away and he writes these letters that are so sharp and pointed as if he has all of this big authority. And they say he's not the same person that's writing, the same person that's here, because when he's here, we're just not impressed. And it kind of becomes personal. Like it gets a little bit petty. They, they feel like Paul's not the orator that he is supposed to be. And Paul doesn't have the physical presence that they would like him to have. And he gets into some other uh, accusations that they have about him in the next chapter. He doesn't have enough supernatural visions. He doesn't take money from them. And all of these things are things that the other apostles, the people who call themselves apostles, do. They take money from the church. They have these amazing oratorical skills. When they stand in front of the church, people are spellbound by their speaking. And Paul just shows up, and he's this kind of funny-looking, unimpressive character. He doesn't meet their standards. And if any of us were given those kinds of accusations, we would feel out of place. We would feel like we don't belong. Our confidence would be shaken. And there are times when people do accuse us of not being sufficient for certain tasks. Sometimes those accusations are accurate, and sometimes they are completely off base. But regardless of the amount of truth in them, all of us will be shaken when we are accused of anything. And even if it's not somebody else accusing us, all of us feel these accusations from ourselves. The reality is that we are all our own worst enemy. That is always ourselves who are judging ourselves and feeling like we are inadequate. 
we think that we are the only ones with imposter syndrome. But I guarantee you that 99.9% of people have imposter syndrome. I don't know who that 0.1% of people are. Maybe, and maybe they don't actually exist. But I can tell you that everyone you meet feels in some way inadequate. Like they don't measure up, like they don't fit in, like they don't belong, like they don't have inherent value. And mostly that comes from ourselves saying that we are the ones falling short. Well, Paul has a way of responding to that feeling and to those accusations. But he tells us, first of all, that you've got to know that there is a way that doesn't work. This is the way that you absolutely should not respond to these feelings. And that is by comparing yourself with others. He says in verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, meaning those other apostles, call themselves apostles, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding or they are foolish. He says comparison is not the way to restore your confidence, to find your power, to feel like you belong. That's how the world works is by comparing yourselves. That's what the other apostles were doing, comparing themselves with each other, with the apostle Paul, and according, and when he comes stacked up to them, he felt unimpressive. He says it doesn't make any sense. There's no value in comparing yourself with others. It is very similar uh, to the way that the food industry puts really random comparisons on containers, like it has 30% less fat. Like, literally, that's a statement. Then what? I don't know. There's 50% more in here. 50% more than what? You could just put any random number. Have you bought paper towels lately? And it says, this is how many rolls you're getting. But, but if you are getting regular rolls, regular, whatever that is, this is how many rolls you're getting. And it makes absolutely no sense. Paul says in the same way, comparing ourselves with others doesn't make any sense. And in fact, it always makes you feel worse. It is uh, scientific, been scientifically proven that the invention of Facebook has increased the incidence of depression in our culture. It started out first for college students. And you can see, and was it like 2007, I think, when Facebook first was rolled out on college campuses, that there's a direct correlation with the comparison that happens on Facebook uh, to the increase in depression in college students. And now that adults and in, 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 uh, high school um, students have it, it is uh, equal opportunity depressor. What we do on Facebook and what we do even if we don't have Facebook, we could, this happens with Christmas cards. Uh, this happens with any time we are in a group of people or we visit someone's home or anything else is that we're comparing ourselves with them. 
Are we more attractive than them? Are they more attractive than us? Are we smarter than them? What, how do our bodies compare to their bodies? How do our houses or our families compare to their houses or their families? And sometimes, you know, it gives you a little boost. But overall, the net effect is to make you feel worse about ourselves. Because part, part, partly because we're comparing our insides with other people's outsides. Paul says that comparison is the way of the world, and that is not going to do anything to make you feel like you belong, to help you find your value in your worth. Paul says that there is another tool available to you, and it is a tool that has divine power in it. A tool that can, that can conquer any stronghold. A tool that can win any war. A tool that is only, the only one fit for spiritual warfare. He alludes to this, or he, he, he says this in verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He's reminding those people who live their lives by comparison that their tools are completely useless in the war that he's fighting. And he's saying those are the tools of the flesh. It's like if I were to take Joshua's, uh, uh, light, his toy lightsaber, and I were to go and fight Darth Vader with it, with, with his real lightsaber. Like you, it's like showing up for a gunfight with a knife. Is that the phrase? Something like that? Uh, it just, he's saying, you need a more powerful tool, and in my ministry, this is the tool that I have. Verse, four, the wep- uh, verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul says, you think I am going to go into a new area that has never heard of Jesus before, and I'm going to use fancy speech and some impressive presence and some flashy ministry in order to convince people to follow Jesus? He says, all of that isn't going to work. You need something with divine power, and when I come in, I'm fighting with the weapons that God gave me. And the weapon is to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. To take every thought that comes into his mind and to see that through a lens of Jesus Christ. To understand how that that thought relates to Christ. There is nothing that Paul does. There is nothing that Paul does not, that Paul thinks There's nothing that Paul feels without him thinking, what does this tell me about Christ? How does this relate to Jesus? How can I take this action, this thought, this feeling captive to Jesus? And when I read, when I've read these passages and I've thought about this before, it's always felt like you've got to be a Jedi master. 
Like, you've got to have a PhD in theology. Like, this is good for the Apostle Paul. He could go in and he could argue with anyone. He could go to Athens. He could go to Harvard. And, and he could just sit down and he could have a, a, an argument with someone and he would show them how that Christianity is better than their philosophy. And I've always felt like it, I was intimidated by these passages. I realize now that what Paul is actually saying is that this is a tool available to people like me and people like you. All it is is that when you have a thought, particularly a thought about your inadequacy or about about how that you don't belong, about how you're falling short in some way, turn that thought toward Christ. Think, what does Christ have to say about this? Take that thought captive to Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have died with Christ Jesus, and I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives through me. I belong to Christ, and no one, nothing in all of creation can separate me from his love. Whatever the thought is, just remind yourself that you belong to Jesus. He says in verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is is confident that he is in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. See yourself in Christ and see others in Christ before you respond in any way to that thought. You belong to Christ, and that means more than anything you have ever accomplished, than anything that you are. What matters most is that you belong to Jesus Christ. Paul knew who he was in Christ. And he had an incredibly clear calling from Jesus Christ himself that he received on the road to Damascus. That calling was confirmed by the other real apostles, that he was to give his life and his ministry preaching the gospel to Gentile people, non-Jewish people, and particularly people who had never heard the gospel before. Paul knew exactly who he was and what he was called to do, and that is where his confidence came from. In verse 13, We will not boast beyond our limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves so that we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Paul knew that he was called to bring the gospel there. Paul knew that it was his responsibility and that these were his people. So Paul knew that he was home when he was in Corinth and he had no reason to question himself or for his confidence to be shaken. Now for those of us who aren't apostles and for those of you that don't have like this really definite ministry calling, you're kind of wondering, well, it does, it's not quite as clear to me what I'm supposed to do, where I should feel comfortable or at home then I just want you to hear from Paul's friend, John, who says that what's important 
is that you know that you believe in Jesus. If we could put 1 John 3 on the screen, it's in Proclaim there. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. This is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, to love one another as he commanded us. If your heart condemns you, first turn to God. Give it to Christ and be reminded that you belong to him. And if you wonder if you belong to Jesus Christ, see if you've taken the first step. Do you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ? If that's the case, if you have put your faith in him, then you belong to Christ and no one can condemn you. You belong to him for eternity. And it's a natural step after belonging to Christ that we will begin to love our neighbors. I love uh, reading biographies. I'm often inspired by them and realize the potential uh, uh, of human beings and Christians, particularly Christian leaders. Um, but I, I also, when I read biographies, really start to question my own self. And I think, what have I done with my life? I cannot believe how much that they preach, how many people they impact, the difference they made in the world. I have to remember, my, remember I belong to Christ. Christ did not call me to what he called these other people to. God, God used them. Praise God. God has called me to do what I'm doing, to be where I am today, and I belong to Christ. I need this as much as any of you to be reminded that we are Christ's captives, to take our thoughts and our feelings and our actions captive to Christ. Our confidence is not going to come from comparing ourselves with others. Our confidence is going to come from being captive to Jesus Christ. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 about a, a Pharisee and a tax collector who went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee has all of the religious credentials. He's done everything right. He fasts, he prays, he gives to the poor. The tax collector is an outcast and a religious failure. He does not feel like he belongs in the temple, and he would certainly be made to feel like he didn't belong there. The tactic that the tax collector uses in the temple is to thank God for his gifts and then compare himself to the tax collector. He says, thank you, God, that I am not like him. The tax collector, on the other hand, does not even look up, but instead bows to his knees and says, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. Jesus says that it's the tax collector that went home justified. That is how you take your thoughts captive to Jesus Christ. Remind yourself when you feel like you don't belong, that you are Christ's. You believe in him. 
and you belong to him. And that is the most important thing about you.